This is The UU Perspective with your host, Sharon Merrill. This is episode number 10 of the UU Perspective podcast, where you hear weekly interviews from Unitarian Universalists that are changing the world through the stand they take on issues facing our world today and who facilitate making a difference in the communities around them. Whether you are a UU or a seeker exploring Unitarian Universalism, there is something here for everyone. From personal spiritual growth to inspiration that impacts the community, you'll be opened up to awesome possibilities. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations you're about to hear. I also want to take a moment just to say thanks to all the listeners. I really appreciate everyone who's listening. We have people listening from eight countries covering four continents, and it's just amazing that this is getting out there and people are so enjoying what they're hearing. Please let me know if there's anyone special you want to hear from. Uh, We're starting to go across the pond now. I'm really thrilled about that. So again, thanks so much for listening. And now let's get into our next guest. I have Susan Ritchie. She is on the UUA Board of Trustees and is the UUA Secretary. And she is also a UU historian and an author. Her current book out is Children of the Same God, The Historical Relationship Between Unitarianism, Judaism, and Islam. And she's going to refer to that book later on, so I just want to let you know that that's the book she is referring to because she didn't mention the name of it. So you just have that in your mind. And she is also currently working on a book that I believe she said might be coming out this summer, Unitarian Pirates of the Caribbean, Issues in UU Polity. So we'll have uh, links to the book in the show notes for you to, uh, if you're interested in taking a look at that. So let's get to it. And here is, oh, wait a minute. But Susan also has... Miss Merrily. And for those of you who don't know Miss Merrily, she is just the diva puppet that is just a leader in puppet ministry, just have to say. And she considers herself a UUU and because she's a sheep. So I want you to enjoy this because we're going to end up with a little interruption from Miss Merrily in her own fashion. And we just had to add that bit to it because Susan is so known for having Miss Merrily. And if you get a chance before you listen, be sure to look at the picture of Miss Merrily. It's just the cutest thing. So, all right. So let's get to it. Here's Susan. All right. Well, welcome, Susan. And I am thrilled to have you here today. And I've already given everybody an overview about you. But would you take a moment and just let everyone else get to know you and tell a little bit about yourself? Sure. And thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, Yeah. So I am a third generation Unitarian. Um, I always like to mention that because Unitarian Universalist identity is kind of my obsession and my thing. So I'm about 18 years now as Minister of the North UU Congregation in Lewis Center and have also spent a lot of time on the side studying our history and how our identity has manifested in different times and places. Um, Personally, I'm 
live in Columbus, Ohio with my partner Donna and our cat Pirate. And of course, the amazing Miss Merrily, who is director of Puppet Ministries at North. Of course. <laughs> That's wonderful. Okay, so, and, and I understand that, um, speaking of pirates, that you are working on a new book. Exactly. Yeah, I've been working on a polity book, and, um, but the kind of centerpiece essay of it is actually going to be Unitarian Pirates of the Caribbean, <laughs> which began as a joke. <laughs> you won't be surprised to learn, um, but turned kind of serious, and I, that's my favorite kind of work to do. Um, but the joke happened when I was at our new UUA headquarters on Farnsworth Street, and staff at the UUA had gathered some of us interested in history to talk about how we might present our historical story to visitors at headquarters, and staff was suggesting it would be lovely if we could have such a compelling version of our history that it would take tourist families off the street just to come visit us. And I have to admit, I thought that was a high bar. <laughs> so in a, in a moment of, of joking, I just said, I know, we'll do an exhibit on Unitarian Pirates of the Caribbean. And I was thinking, you know, we could have a whole pirate-themed gift store, you know, it'd be great. You know, and not to, our UUA headquarters is right there on the Charles River, only a half a block away from the Tea Party ship. So, you know, I was, I was thinking we could have our own ship, launch raids. Anyway, it was all a joke. <laughs> but then later that night, I got to wondering, well, what is the connection between our religious ancestry and, and the whole pirate phenomenon? And I was interested to learn there's an enormous connection. <laughs> so to, to, to just do it fairly quickly... Um, so 1660 in England was a big date for religious radicals because that's when the monarchy was restored and all the religious radicals had to find new places to be. And a lot of them ended up in the West Indies. And so the, the quick version of the story is a lot of those islands in the West Indies where pirates took refuge were also the place where radical Protestants took refuge alongside of escaped slaves. And they often had these incredibly interesting communities where they derived very democratic forms of governance. And so I would actually argue that our beloved congregational polity comes just as much out of that lived experience of pirates and escaped enslaved persons and radical Protestants um, living together in that time. When is this book going to be done? I hope to get it done over the summer. I would have great plans for summer work. Okay, great, great. So you're a historian, correct? Yes. And I'm very, very curious about what everyone can learn about just kind of the UU history and some of the interesting and fun facts that we might not be able to find so easily. So can you give us any, you know, inside info on you? you? <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for asking that way, because I often like to joke with students that history is just kind of a glorified gossip, and the only thing actually, you know, removing gossip in history are just uh, is a matter of time, literally. <laughs> um, but my interest in history has always been how it informs our identity and who we are and who we aspire to be. So it's, it's always been something very alive for me. But to give you an example of something I don't think a lot of 
folks know. Um, so the book that I published last year was about the historical relationship between Unitarians and Jews and Muslims. And I don't think many folks realize the degree to which Unitarian Universalism was truly multi-religious in the conversations we had and how we formed our own identity and how we understood our aspirations from the very beginning. I, I think there might be kind of an assumption that that was something that happened much later on. So it was fun to unpack that for folks. Okay. And what, uh, I mean, what was the biggest discovery you found that was surprising? Well, it all started um, when I was having conversations with um, a personal friend who is a historian of the Ottoman um, Islamic Empire. And when I started to realize that adding together what she knew with what I knew about the development of Transylvanian Unitarians in the 16th century, we were ending up with a pretty complete story about how Unitarianism evolved in that time and place under the direct influence of relationship with their uh, Muslim neighbors. So just for example, you know, we've always talked about the um, Edict of Torda, which was done in 1568 as this great proclamation of religious freedom as the pure invention of Unitarianism. Well, I was able to show it was really influenced strongly by the Ottoman Muslims and the Unitarians' interest in those liberal Muslim persons. And that really, in, in a lot of ways, Unitarianism emerged out of that conversation. Wow. So not a sudden existence, but kind of a creation of a combination of faiths. Well, right. Well, well right. Well, and we often tell the story of, and I think all denominations do this, but you know, when you talk about denominational history, you often kind of tell the story in a vacuum of context outside of the congregation, you know, like it gave birth to itself. But of course, it's always, it's always more complicated than that and better than that, I would argue. And I'm always very inspired by um, how history happens. So, you know, when I went to grade school, I had no idea I was interested in history because it was all names and dates and monarchs and wars and that sort of thing. But uh, when I got more interested, I just became so fascinated by the idea that I really don't think that people have ideas and then enact those ideas on the world, but rather ideas emerge out of how we're already living together. And so that was my experience with the Unitarians in Transylvania. It wasn't that they had this idea of religious tolerance. It's that they were already living in really interesting multicultural ways. And so the idea kind of became thinkable out of the practice of the community itself. When, when did the uh, name come about, Unitarian? Uh, it, yeah, it's, a, it's in that 1560s. Um, range that we first get a church that calls itself Unitarian and gathers around that principle. Did it pretty much stay in the Transylvania area for quite a while? I mean, when did it start spreading? Well, it's no accident that Transylvania is where it emerged, and then, of course, the next um, contemporaneously, almost with Transylvania, it's in Poland. And it's no mystery it should be that part of the world because um, it really needed to be somewhere far enough away um, from the Inquisitions and from 
the the real serious power of the church that a radical form of Christianity would be given the time and space to develop. So that's why Transylvania and Poland are really the first places you see um, Unitarians gathering in community. They needed that kind of space. They needed to be on a borderland, quite literally. Now, in Transylvania, as they were gathering and it was growing, what was the stand back then? Well, I mean, the, what made them completely radical was this notion that um, multi-religious living was desirable. So the huge thing about the Edict of Torda was it was the first time that you had a head of state, John Sigismund, who was a Unitarian in Transylvania, saying that the religion of the land didn't have to be his religion and that it would be fine to practice several religions at the same time. And so that was, you know, that was that was absolutely an innovation in Europe at the time. So there's that feeling about multi-religious life, but when I think about what propelled them, <laughs> the Transylvanians were just pure genius reformers in that they were just constantly willing to examine their own assumptions and examine the assumptions of Protestantism and just kind of keep that reform engine moving. So always in, in question and kind of exploring things. Exactly. Um, you know, my image of Francis David, who was one of the great thinkers in, in uh, Transylvania, was that he was, anytime he found himself sitting on a tree limb, he was willing to saw it off. We have a lot of famous UUs. Who were some of the big influencers well, you know, it's interesting. I have to I have to say I have a resistance towards thinking about great Unitarians <laughs> and Universalists and great UUs, um, just because my own bias of history is that communities kind of create the possibility for thoughts and ideas. So I, I don't do much of a great person model of, of history. Um, you know, that said, there have been obviously outstanding people in our past who have been able to articulate what we believe in common with, you know, incredible precision and, and um, art, articulateness. But uh, I, 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 I rather prefer thinking about the people themselves motoring history. So are you, uh, do you look more at the events and what has made an impact in the world? Well, maybe I can give you an example, actually, from the civil rights movement, which um, it really helped me change my thinking about how I did Unitarian history. But so, you know, growing up in UU Sunday schools, I learned this kind of basic version of the civil rights struggle, which, of course, had Rosa Parks sitting down on a bus because she was tired. Uh, <laughs> and then when, you know, I, I started looking into civil rights history for real, and realized everyone who was behind that action. You know, so Rosa Parks had been a part of a group at her church, Women for Social Action, that had deliberately trained and planned for years and years. Um, and it was this, all this incredibly intentional action on the part of a huge community. But when she sits down on the bus, it's, it starts to look like she's, she's the main agent in that. When, it, when, in fact, it took this, you know, entire group of people years to achieve that. What, uh, what other historical events do you believe we've had the greatest impact on as Unitarian Universalists? Where, well, where I'm going in my polity book is thinking about 
um, our influence on the development of American democracy. So it's always been a big conversation inside of American history to what degree um, our democratic congregational polity that the Puritans practiced influenced the development of secular democracy. And I, I think I'm be able to, to put some of those pieces together a little more carefully than we have in the past. But I find that immensely intriguing to think that um, what we think of as our secular democracy really had its origin in congregationalist ideas. Mm, okay. When you're looking into the history and everything, what do you find is the, the biggest challenge you face as you're exploring it? Well, being a minority movement doesn't help. So a lot of our history, um, actually almost all of our history, has been done just by a few individuals, and not all of them have been professionally trained historians. And so there's really just kind of a lack of already available intellectual work. And it's always kind of discouraging <laughs> from the standpoint of that, you know, we're a movement that prides ourselves on intellectual resources. And yet the, the, the fact of the matter is that we, we don't really support scholarship in any explicit way. And so what we, what we do in that realm is, is really limited, limited by that and limited by our numbers and our lack of resources. Do you find that you're looking through all of those historical papers and having to kind of re-research those to make sure they are correct then? Well, it's not that they're not correct. It's just that, um, you know, a lot of this work hasn't been done. Um, you know, a long-time fantasy of mine is, you know, being let loose in the Vatican Library with all the keys. <laughs> but, you know, we just uh, we, we just don't have those kind of resources. So it, it's not that the stuff isn't there and the stuff isn't accurate. It's, it's just that we haven't been able to really develop academic understanding of, of who we are as richly as I would like. Um, I mean, the, there are all kinds of, I can't think of another denomination, for example, that doesn't have a whole bevy of people whose only task is preserving and thinking in new ways about the heritage of the movement. And we don't do that. Do we have a good library of our history? Um, it's, I don't think it's that the material resources aren't there. It's that we don't have the human resources to do it. So we have a very few people who do UU history, and most of us make our living in other ways. So it's, I think it's more of a matter of people than things. What are some of the good historical books that we can find out there? Well, gosh, it depends on what you're after. Um, Dan McCannon is a wonderful source for stuff. He is, of course, at Harvard, and he holds the chair that's uh, jointly sponsored by Harvard and the UUA. So of all the folks in our horizon who are kind of officially charged with our heritage, Dan would be one, and he does beautiful work. Can you give us anything in our history that we wouldn't necessarily know that would be fun to learn about? <laughs> well, I hope your version of fun is my version of fun. <laughs> but I, I, I know I've mentioned this in, in different places like districts assemblies and whatnot, but uh, I'm always amused by how many of our favorite sayings attributed to famous UUs were not actually words of those famous UUs. <laughs> oh, okay. 
Um, you know, perhaps the most example, famous example, is the John Murray benediction, uh, the benediction attributed to John Murray in our gray hymnal, which is about go out on the byways and the highways. Don't give them hell, but hope and courage. Show them something of the everlasting love of God. Well, we know that John Murray didn't say that. That was actually the words of a mid-20th century um, historian who taught universalist history at St. Lawrence Theological School. And then somehow it got misattributed to John Murray himself. What the professor was trying to do was just imagine what the spirit of history might have been saying to John Murray that he heard, what his inspiration was. But then it gets misrecorded as actually being John Murray. And then the other, the other whopper in our hymnal is the Francis David quote, um, 16th century Transylvanian. And in the great hymnal, we attribute words to him that say, we need not um, think alike to love alike. And that's definitely not Francis David, and it's definitely not a 16th century person. Using, using love in that way is just completely unthinkable for that time and place. Um, but anyway, I, I'm just amused by these things because I think it suggests that there's a larger wisdom that we actually all have access to, <laughs> and it doesn't matter to me so much if we can trace them to extraordinary individuals. The ideas are beautiful in and of themselves. Well, what other big projects do you have um, on the horizon? I mean, we've got the the book that'll be coming out. Is there anything else you're working on? Uh, well, the other thing that uh, distracts me, <laughs> and that's not a fair use of the word, is I, I have been serving the past six years on the UUA board. So that's been a significant time commitment. So um, in, in terms of major projects, that, that kind of has my bases covered. What do you do on the UUA board? Um, well, my official position is I'm secretary of the association. Um, but the piece of the work that I've found most interesting is we've been having extensive conversations about the vitality of our democracy inside of Unitarian Universalism. You know, is General Assembly um, constructed in such a way as to be as representative as it could be is kind of the smallest version of that question. But the, the bigger question of how we can make sure that as many folks as possible have a voice in what we do together is just endlessly fascinating to me. So I understand you have a puppet ministry, and, <laughs> and Miss Merrily leads that. Is that correct? <laughs> Hello. Yes, this is Miss Merrily. Hello. Oh, Miss Merrily. Whoa. So you're, so you're joining us, huh? <laughs> yes, it's it's. This is a challenge. This would be my first not video interview. <laughs> yes, yes. So we don't know what you look like, but we'll certainly put the picture out of you. So, how how um have you been doing lately? I was nearly very excited with General Assembly coming to Columbus, Ohio. She's oh. going to help welcome people and encourage people to attend GA in 2016. Oh, really? So come be with Miss Marilyn in Columbus. It's not a cow town. <laughs> and Miss Marilyn, what, uh, what have you been doing lately that uh, has been important to everyone and, you know, in your great divaness uh, that you, the message you've been bringing across? <laughs> Sorry, Susan is interjecting here. <laughs> 
Because I, I, I have to admit that my, my description of Marilee's mission might not be Marilee's description of Marilee's mission. So. Oh. <laughs> Should we get both sides of that? <laughs> Exactly. I might be getting in some serious trouble here. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I can't resist to saying something in my own Susan voice about Mar- Marilee's Genesis, which mm-hmm. was um, a wonderfully gifted DRE, uh, Katie Herslev Covey. Mm-hmm. Um, she came to do an assessment of our RE program, and I asked for her help with intergenerational services. I was really hating how I was doing time with the children, uh-huh. um, so I would take these stories, ones with really heavy morals, and then I would hit the moral hard, you know, oh. like, you know, so children, you know, was it nice when the bunny ate the mouse, you know, <laughs> right. stuff like that, was that good or kind, and I was just hating myself around it, so I asked Katie's help, um, and she had this great idea, she said, I know what you need, you need a puppet who misunderstands things. Oh. Um, And I have to say that's worked beautifully. So it kind of democratizes children's worship in a way. So, you know, the children can correct Miss Merrily. And Mm -hmm. so um, this is what I didn't want to say in front of Miss Merrily, but Miss Merrily's main job is to get things wrong. (laughs) Get things wrong. Oh, my. (laughs) And what what is uh, Miss Merrily is a certain animal, correct? Yeah, well, she's a she's a sheep puppet, but when she first came to us, um, she did this whole thing about her journey and trying to figure out who she was and needing the support of the congregation as she discovered her identity. So her identity gradually unfolded. She began to discover she was a sheep. Then she began to discover um, her gender identity as a UUU. <laughs> God. Okay. But anyway, with each with each stage, she's been, uh, you know, asking folks if they would welcome her and support her in her quest to understand herself. Oh my. Okay. <laughs> so so now we should bring Miss Merrily back in and ask her who she really is. <laughs> yes. Yes. Hello. All yes. Right. I don't know where I went. I don't know what Susan did with me. Oh no. Well, we're glad you're back. So, um, can can I ask you again? What what is it that you do inside of being a you you yourself, or is it a you you you? Yes, I'm a you you you, and I help Susan with intergenerational worship, and I help with the children's. But of course, I now have a national profile as well. Okay. And I'm happy to say there are other puppets out there who say that they are, have been inspired by my ministry. Wow. But I, I assume you lead them, though. Oh, well, yes. And I was pleased to give the right hoof of fellowship to a particularly <laughs> wonderful puppet by the name of Reverend Bunny. Oh. And there's now this purple, purple creature that does hospital chaplaincy for children that <sighs> was inspired by moi. But yes. I, I'm trying to get Susan to put up a website for all of us puppets to network together, but she hasn't gotten around to it. Oh, oh. well, wouldn't that be nice? Then you, then you would just have the run of the place, wouldn't you, if you all were out there? Oh. Exactly. I am the head diva. It is true. <laughs> what's, your, what's your biggest accomplishment? Well, I think, you know, I had a very humble beginning. I Before I came to North, I was working as retail at Larson Toys and Games. And so to become on board, to church staff, and really develop my program, 
I'm, I'm quite excited. But, of course, now it's time to go national. Oh, yes. Now, do you and Susan always get along? No. <laughs> <laughs> really? Well, I, I can't imagine. What, what do you disagree on? Well, we have arguments about my working conditions. <laughs> What's your working conditions? Well, I have a very strict contract. I only work a certain number of Sundays a month, but yet I demand a lot of pulpit time. Oh, my. <laughs> oh, any other demands that aren't being met? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to interrupt again there because <laughs> you don't want to set that free. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> Oh, well, that's fun. Oh, my gosh. Okay, well, Marilee has left the room again, huh? <laughs> it's funny how she comes again. I know. All right. Well, let, let's move along then. Um, I would like you to tell me, what is a favorite quote that inspires you? Well, this is going to sound like negative inspiration, but I really do find it um, helpful. And that is, I love an Annie Dillard quote. So to set it up, she's on a writer's retreat, and she's somewhere far on the West Coast, and she's away from her usual church home, which is Episcopalian. So she's attending this very humble Congregationalist church in this rural area, and she's trying really hard to like it, <laughs> but she's, she's struggling. Um, she can't understand why this church is so averse to liturgy, and she's kind of horrified by the linoleum altar, and the music program is someone very falteringly singing a song about mountains that didn't seem to have anything to do with the service. So anyway, she's, she's trying hard but struggling. But she works through that, and her final paragraph, she says, I think there's no greater sign of God's goodness and forgiveness than that the church has been allowed to exist. And, you know, that that might sound a teeny bit cynical, but I find it really helpful in remembering that, you know, it's kind of the purest expression of faith, I think, to understand that our institutions um, will sometimes fail us, precisely because they are human institutions. Um, but that that's not the same thing as faith itself. Yeah. Okay, great. And the last question that I ask all of our guests to answer is, how is Unitarian Universalism as a religious denomination uniquely positioned to serve and impact society? Well, I'd have to go back to how comfortable we are in mixing and being multi-religious. Um, you know, so many religious traditions depend on their identity, kinds of pure forms of um, identification where, you know, you are something and there's a clear boundary between that and the next thing. And that's just not how people live today. It's not how millennials live. It's not what the new kind of cultural trends are. So I think the fact that we've always been comfortable saying that religion is a dialogue between people who don't agree and who don't have to have to agree, I think that really positions us well in the contemporary moment. Yeah. Okay. Well, great. Well, thanks so much, Susan, for uh, joining me and letting everyone know a little bit more about yourself and finding more about your, about your book that's going to be coming out. And also, how, how can people reach you if they need to contact you? Uh, that's easy. S. Ritchie at uua.org. Okay. But 
Thank you so much for having me, and good luck with your podcast. I'm really glad you're doing this. Yes, thank you. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the UU Perspective podcast. And please take a look at uuperspective.com, the website where you'll find all the show notes and a link to Susan's book. And also uh, feel free to subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher Radio along with you Android people can use Beyond Pod or Podcast Republic for your downloads. So again, thanks for listening and see you next time on the UU Perspective Podcast. Thank you.